Tonight I'd like to talk about the Buddha's teaching of dependent origination. This teaching is one of the most fundamental and most challenging, in a way, difficult to understand of the Buddha's teachings. It's basically a detailed exposition of the second noble truth. The second noble truth being that the cause of suffering is craving. And the exposition of dependent origination basically goes into great depth of how craving leads to suffering. A whole set of causes and conditions that lead us into suffering. Sometimes this teaching is called the Buddha's middle teaching. I think we're most, mostly, most familiar with the, the middle way, the middle path that the Buddha taught. The middle teaching is not so much a practice, but an understanding, a description of the way things are for us usually in the world. And the middle path are the set of practices that implement a path that leads to an understanding of the middle teaching. So I'm going to reread a sutta that I read part of the other day. This world, kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, upon the idea of existence and the idea of non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no idea of non-existence in regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is with correct wisdom, there is no idea of existence in regard to the world. All exists, kachana, this is one extreme. All does not exist, this is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. With ignorance as a condition, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as condition consciousness, with consciousness as condition name and form, with name and form as condition the six sense spaces, with the six sense spaces as condition contact, with contact as condition, feeling, with feeling as condition, craving, with craving as condition, clinging, with clinging as condition, existence, with existence as condition, birth, with birth as condition, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, dejection and despair come to be. Such is the origin of this whole mass of suffering. So he teaches this as a middle teaching between the teachings or understandings of existence and non-existence. That things don't exist in the way we normally think of them existing, but there is a chain of conditions that leads to a kind of stream. And things, if we think of things as not existing, that's also not correct because there is this stream. So this teaching of dependent origination is a complex teaching, as you may have heard from that long list, 12 links in this chain that he described. And I will go through them tonight. So buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> 
So the complexity of this teaching was kind of underscored by, um, by Ananda, uh, an interchange between Ananda and the Buddha. One day the Buddha came to, um, Ananda came to the Buddha and said something along the lines of, this teaching on dependent origination seems so clear to me. And the Buddha said something like, say not so, Ananda. This teaching on dependent origination is very profound. It seems profound and it is profound. One who understands dependent origination understands the entirety of my teaching. So essentially an understanding, a, a, a penetrative understanding of this teaching is equated with full liberation. So we probably won't understand it entirely tonight. But there's always a possibility. <laughs> there's, one, there's one sutta that I love to contemplate where they were, there was a discussion between a monk and another group of monks. They were talking about a topic and in the course of that discussion, it was basically a Dharma talk, both the person who was speaking and the whole group of listeners became fully enlightened. So there's hope for all of us tonight. <laughs> so I hope to make this talk both clear and practical because this teaching can be kind of ob obscure at times. But there are some ways that in my own practice that I have seen this to be very useful. So I hope to make it both uh, clear and practical. So on the practical side, just to begin, why talk about this? Why go through this very detailed description? Well, partly it is a very clear causal description of how suffering comes to be. And because it describes how suffering comes to be and describes that it is a chain of causes and conditions and describes it in a very impersonal way, we can begin to understand our own suffering as being an impersonal phenomenon, not something that has, is particularly um, due to who I am, but just because of the fact of being alive. So we can see the impersonal nature of this unfolding process of suffering through understanding a little bit about this teaching. We can also understand that through this description of the causes of suffering, that when we can understand how suffering is caused, we may be able to connect with choices that will lead us out of this chain. that in understanding the causes of suffering, we can make skillful choices that will help to unravel this chain. So we'll go through these 12 links again. Ignorance is typically the first link. Ignorance leading to mental formations. Mental formations conditioning consciousness. Consciousness conditioning name and form. Mentality, materiality is another translation of that. Nama rupa is the Pali. Name and form conditioning the six sense bases. 
The sixth sense base is conditioning contact. Contact conditions feeling. Feeling conditions craving. Craving conditions clinging. Clinging conditions becoming. Becoming conditions birth. Birth conditions aging and death, and thus the entire mass of suffering. Now, a couple things to point out about this. One is that this um, is generally taught as a cyclic chain. That it's not a one-way path. It actually loops back on itself. So that suffering is understood to, in turn, further condition more ignorance. And so leading through the cycle again. The other thing is that it is a causal chain. And the typically, typical way we think about causality is A causes B. B happens because of A. And that is one of the kinds of causality that is described in the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist psychology, the text on Buddhist psychology. I believe in the Abhidhamma there's something like 24 different kinds of causality that are described with respect to this chain. And I'm just going to mention three of them. And I'll try to uh, point to these a little bit as, as I go through the more detailed description of the elements of the chain. There's the, the, the one I just mentioned, the, what we might call inducement, that because of something, something else happens. There's a causal, A causes B. Another one is what we might call mutual conditioning, that A conditions B and B conditions A, that it's a back and forth relationship. The most obvious example of this kind of conditioning is the chicken and the egg, that you have a chicken and because of the chicken, the chicken can produce the egg and then from the egg comes a chicken. So it's a mutual conditioning. You're not going to have the chicken without the egg, and you're not going to have the egg without the chicken. That's a mutual conditioning. And then there is what is called arising together. Two things arising simultaneously. Co-arising, sometimes it is called. This may be... um, two things being caused by something else. But you're not going to have those two things apart from each other. So one of the the standard examples of this in the text, at least in my understanding, is that when there is some kind of contact with uh, the sense bases, there is an arising of a moment of consciousness that contains feeling and perception. And feeling and perception arise together. There's not, there's not one without the other, and there's not really a sense that feeling causes perception or perception causes feeling. They, they arise together. This is, this is co-arising. Now, I think the fact that there's all these different kinds of conditionings is part of what makes this teaching so complex. And I'm not going to try to go into all of the complexities. I'm going to try to keep it... Um, keep it basically pretty straightforward tonight. So the classical teaching on this chain breaks it into three lives. Basically, there are conditions from a previous life that led into how we are in this life and the conditions in this life will in turn impact how we are in the next life. So in this, in this form, um, the first two links, ignorance and mental formations, are understood to be part of a past life. 
then the middle links of the chain from consciousness through to becoming are understood to be in this life and the everything that happens in this life is said to then lead into birth aging and death in the next life now this is really it's obvious that this is a pedagogical tool because um, you know in the previous life we have birth and aging and death in this life we have birth and aging and death we don't have to wait until our next life to have birth and aging and death so it's it's obvious that this is a pedagogical tool the literal um, phrasing of the links does support this kind of multiple life interpretation the terms used birth you know, birth does seem to indicate, you know, we can interpret this as birth within a body, aging and death, the aging and death of the body. But the suttas also support an understanding of this process of dependent origination, this full cycle, as being a description of moment-to-moment experience. In this case, the term for birth, jati, is understood to be the birth into an identity, the birth into a state of of selfing, basically. And the term for aging and death is understood to be the the decay, the, the the cessation of that state of being, the cessation, the aging and cessation of moment-to-moment experience. And just as an aside, actually, but I found this to be very interesting because I had heard the multiple life model as the way of teaching this for many, many, um, many times with with the understanding too that the uh, moment-to-moment interpretation was also possible, but I had understood that as being a more modern interpretation, an interpretation laid on top of the suttas, and not one that was actually um, in the suttas, in the Pali Canon. But I read an article by Venerable Paiuto who actually pointed out that in the Abhidhamma, which is a part of the Pali Canon, there are two descriptions given of dependent origination, one of them being this multiple life model of understanding how causes in past life impact us in this present life and causes in this present life impact us in a future life. The other teaching is about the moment-to-moment arising, And in the Abhidhamma texts, there are only five pages of text devoted to the the multiple life model. And there are 72 pages of text devoted to the moment-to-moment model. In the commentarial tradition, the tradition that followed on from the suttas and the the Pali canon, this... um, Emphasis is reversed, and in the, the commentaries, the multiple life model receives a lot more airtime, and the moment-to-moment model receives much less. And our tradition, the Theravada tradition, is, is a lot of um, a tradition around the commentaries of the sutta, the suttas. So it kind of makes sense to me now that this is the, the, the understanding that I was mostly taught. But it's in there. It's in the Pali Canon. And this second view of moment-to-moment arising of experience, that, the, that this dependent origination describes a moment-to-moment arising of experience, is one that I have personally understood at least parts of. And it has, it has, it has meaning for me. It's very, it, it, there's a clarity to it. It helps to clarify my moment-to-moment um, unfolding of experience. And I don't have any personal experience of previous lives or 
any intimations of future lives. So that teaching for me makes it a little bit more difficult to uh, connect with this teaching. So I'm going to approach this this evening from the moment-to-moment understanding. That's how I'm going to talk about it, as a process, as a teaching that describes the moment-to-moment unfolding of suffering in our lives. And I'm going to do this in a slightly unconventional way. Typically, people begin talks on dependent origination by starting with the first link in the chain, ignorance. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to start somewhere in the middle, where actually I think it's a little bit easier to uh, understand. So basically, we have a mind and a body. We're conscious, and we have this body and um, mental processes going on. Because of that, we experience input from the six sense bases. The six sense bases being the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the touch sense organ, and the mind. So we we receive sense impressions through the six sense bases. These, um, sense ex- these sense experiences through contact with things in the world, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch, we experience contact with these sense bases. This is the next link in the chain. So we have consciousness, mind and, um, mind and matter, six sense bases, because of the sixth sense spaces, we have contact. So we experience contact. This is all relatively straightforward. This is just kind of, you know, biology at this point. There's contact with the sense base. Based on that contact, each of these sense impressions in all of the sense doors has a, we could, a flavor to it. It's either pleasant, it's unpleasant, or it's neutral. So this is the feeling tone of experience. So based on contact, with contact as condition, feeling arises. Based on this feeling tone, and we've talked about a lot of this in various talks, based on this feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, if something is pleasant, we like it, we want it, we want to have more of it. Something's unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. Something's neutral, we often don't connect to it or notice it at all. So based on this feeling tone, there is this wanting. Wanting more of the pleasant, wanting less of the unpleasant. Perhaps not wanting to connect to the neutral. We're kind of like a simple machine that tries to maximize pleasant and minimize unpleasant. And we usually automatically act on this process of wanting. Liking, wanting, pleasant, liking, wanting, and we move out to, to, to get it, to grab it, to hold on to it. Take some kind of an action to grab that object. This is clinging. Craving leads to clinging. Once an object is clung to, our intentions and actions kind of rally to serve that clinging, to produce or to control things, to to, um, have the sense that we have control over those things that we that we have clung to. These are the intentions that the intentions and actions that act in the service of clinging are what we call becoming. We actually like becoming. We like feeling like we know where we're headed. We like feeling like we have some um, sense of control. Or, or feel like we know something. 
following on from becoming, the intention towards that control, the intention towards um, the intention towards the doing around our clinging. Based on that becoming, birth arises. This birth into some kind of an identity. Things become me or mine. This might take kind of an obvious form, such as, you know, this is my thing, this is my shawl. Or it might be something more like, I'm the kind of person who likes to walk in the woods. So there's, there's this kind of a sense. Birth is where there's a, a, a sense of identity, a sense of one separate from another. When there's, when there's self, there's other. And this chain of dependent origination actually can be thought of not as only as a description of how suffering is created, but also as a description of this process of identification, the process of selfing that we've talked about in the past weeks. And from here, once there is this birth, the Buddha says that suffering is inevitable. Having taken birth into a, an identity, there is the inevitable falling apart of that identity. Evidence that that identity, that we don't have the control over that identity that we think we, uh, that, that that identity feels it should have. So that gives you a little bit of a flavor for dependent origination. And I'm going to, at least for those links in the chain, um, give a couple of examples. So the first example is uh, around sense pleasure. So, um, you know, there's the contact of a sense object, say a sight of uh, a beautiful flower. So there's the contact with the, uh, the eye. And then there's a feeling of pleasure that arises based on that contact. Based on that feeling of pleasure, there can form this wanting, this desire to have this pleasant thing. Then there's the, uh, the clinging, which is the actual taking possession of the thing. There's one great description. Sometimes there's a question around what's the distinction between craving and clinging. And there's one distinction that's described by Bhikkhu Bodhi, who is a great translator of the Pali Canon. And he talks about clinging as being the movement of a thief reaching out to take something. And clinging being like the the moment that he has grabbed that thing. So they lead from one to another, but they're, they're kind of along a continuum, craving to clinging. So clinging is actually the taking possession of the thing that we want, this, this sense object. Becoming is the intentions and actions designed to uh, control things according to that clinging. That is to keep the thing perhaps protected or safe. So that's, that's that, those intentions to control, around control of that thing. The birth is the clear sense of identification or possessiveness. This flower is mine. A feeling that one owns or controls or possesses that thing. And then aging and death. One who possesses something must ultimately be separated from it, whether through the loss of the thing or through the death of oneself. All accumulation ends in dispersal. 
This is one of the teachings around impermanence. Whenever one um, has something, there will inevitably be separation from it. There can also be, so there's suffering in this. There, there, if there's attachment to having, if there's the attachment to the having, there's going to be suffering in the loss. There's also suffering in the fear of loss. The suffering that we experience is in direct proportion to the amount or the intensity of attachment, the intensity of the clinging, and the intensity of the identification, the intensity of that feeling of, I am the one who has this thing. So that's one example. Now another one, this is a little more, um, a little more complex, is kind of um, a life state example. And this is actually more along the lines of how we suffer because we, we largely suffer over I, things that we think we are. Not so much. We do sometimes suffer over loss of possessions, but more I think we really suffer over some kind of an identity that we hold I'm, I'm the kind of person who doesn't make mistakes. And making a mistake, there's a conflict with reality there. And then we really suffer for, from that. So I'm going to go through an example of this as well. So the contact with the sense door is with the mind, the contact with the mind. There's some kind of an idea of being, perhaps an idea of being a good yogi. So there's the contact, that contact with the sense door. And then there's some kind of a feeling around that. And this is, this is probably fairly complex, actually, but for the sake of this example, let's just say that the idea of, of being a good yogi creates a pleasant feeling. And there may be a kind of a fantasy around being a good yogi that, that creates a pleasant uh, feeling tone. Desire, the craving, is the desire to have that fantasy, that idea of that pleasurable state become a reality. The clinging here is around, it's kind of like around a fixed attitude around this. It's, it's, it's an intensification of that desire, the desire to have that the desire to become a good yogi becomes intensified to the point where it becomes a fixed attitude. I need to become a good yogi. I need this to be happy. I will accomplish this. So it's an intensification. The clinging it has, has, has more of an intensification to it. The becoming, from those fixed attitudes... The, that belief, the, I mean, I, one way to look at this is that desire is the wanting and then the clinging is a belief that it's necessary. So from those fixed attitudes, from those beliefs, patterns of behavior arise that serve that belief. We are in the, in the process of becoming at this point. When those intentions arise, to serve those beliefs, the intentions to behave in a certain way in the meditation hall, the intention to follow the schedule or the intention to sit long, whatever it is, those intentions are the process of becoming. Birth is the sense of taking the identity of that belief. One has the feeling that one is the good yogi. Perhaps everything confirms this. You can sit longer than anybody else, or 
you know, you eat slower than anybody else and you walk more slowly and open the doors more carefully. Everything is confirming this to you, that you are a good yogi. So this is the birth. There's, there's this distinct feeling of self that has arisen around this, um, this pattern. Aging and death. Whenever there is a sense of a self occupying a position, sooner or later, there will be something that happens that deprives that self of that position. There's a sitting where you find you can't stay mindful for two seconds together. This runs counter to the identification, to that, that birth into that identity. And there is suffering. Because there's now some kind of, and this in my experience was that there now becomes some kind of a belief, oh, I'm not a good yogi. And this is very painful because what I wanted was to be a good yogi. So now I'd like to go back to those parts of the chain that I haven't gotten to yet, the ones at the beginning. Ignorance, mental formations, consciousness at the beginning of the chain. So, but first I want to to make the point that because, again, because this chain is cyclic, it is understood that suffering leads to ignorance. In fact, the Buddha has a famous quote that suffering either leads to bewilderment or to search. He says, and what is the result of suffering? There are some cases in which a person overcome with pain, her mind exhausted, grieves, mourns, laments, beats her breast, becomes bewildered. Or when overcome with pain, her mind exhausted comes to search outside. Who knows a way or two to stop this pain? I tell you that suffering results either in bewilderment or in search. So this suffering leads to ignorance. A main definition of ignorance is not understanding the Four Noble Truths. That's one of the main definitions in the texts around ignorance. One who does not understand the Four Noble Truths His mind, her mind is clouded with ignorance. So ignorance means that we don't understand suffering. We don't understand what leads to suffering. In ignorance, we think we know what will lead to our happiness. We think that having what we want will lead to our happiness. But as you have seen, I think, in your own experience, actually having what we want doesn't go very far. And it actually just takes us deeper into this cycle of suffering, deeper into this cycle of dissatisfaction. And seeing, actually, that having what we want doesn't go very far. So the basic condition for suffering to lead to ignorance is that suffering is not understood. What causes suffering is not understood. So if suffering is met with wisdom and understanding instead of ignorance, this chain leads in a completely different direction. It actually leads out of the chain of suffering, and into a chain of liberation. So this is one of the places where we can really bring our attention. Understanding suffering with wisdom begins to break this cycle. But mostly we 
don't meet suffering with wisdom and ignorance results. So the next link, with ignorance as a condition, mental formations come to be. So based on ignorance, based on this idea that, or not understanding, based on not understanding suffering, intentions and actions are formed about how we choose things, decide things, do things, behave. So these intentions around how we how we are going to engage in the world. This is mental formation. Mental formations are essentially the habits and patterns that lead us forward in this cycle. We often take the most obvious step to, um, to get rid of our unpleasant sensations and to hold on to our pleasant sensations. That moving us into this chain of pleasant leading to wanting, leading to clinging. So this is ignorance leading into mental formation. That because of ignorance, we intend and, be, and uh, act in ways that run in, uh, in line with ignorance, run counter to wisdom. With mental formations as a condition, consciousness comes to be. So we can think of these habits and patterns. The habits and patterns are choices, our intentions, as conditioning the nature of our consciousness and what we experience. For example, if you have a habitual pattern of responding with anger to things, if there's a habitual inclination towards anger, then that becomes a kind of filter in our consciousness. And we tend to pick things out of the environment that confirm or support that anger. So we have an orientation towards a pattern. The mental formations is basically an orientation in our minds. And because of that orientation, our consciousness picks certain things out of our environment and doesn't pick other things out of our environment. Certain things come to consciousness, other things do not come to consciousness because of those mental formations. We've talked about this uh, in past weeks, about how filters have us choosing certain experiences out. We filter things in and out of our experience. There's one amazing study, some of you may have heard about, that really highlights this ability of the mind to filter in and out experience. There was a study where people were asked to view this short video clip of people passing a basketball to each other. And they were told to count the number of times that basketball passed between various people on the team. That was their task while watching this video. And while watching this video, the vast majority of people could count the number of uh, passes, but they neglected to see that during the course of this video, a large person in a large gorilla suit came out, walked onto the basketball court, danced around for a while, and then walked (laughs) off. When they were asked about this, they, they said they hadn't seen it. And in fact, they denied, they, they didn't believe them when they, told, they were told that that had, been, that, had, that had happened. They didn't believe that that gorilla was in the video. This is an example of how a perception can filter in and out experience. So our mental formations, what we are intending to see and do, impacts what we, what we experience, impacts our consciousness. So consciousness leading to 
mentality materiality or name and form. So this, this is a kind of a funny word, mind and matter. It's sometimes called different other translations, name and form, materiality, mentality. Basically, it refers to uh, the, the mentality. The materiality part refers to the processes of our body. The mentality part refers to most of the processes of our mind, it refers to the process of perception, the process of feeling, the process of um, mental formations. So basically, the uh, mentality materiality, one definition I've seen of it, one very clear definition of I've, seen of I've seen of it, is that it is the four aggregates excluding the aggregate of consciousness. We've talked about the aggregates, five aggregates, the aggregate of consciousness, feeling, perception, mental formations, and form, body. We've talked about these a couple of times. These two links, consciousness and materiality, mentality, are, these are the entirety of the five aggregates. Materiality, mentality being those four, feeling, perception, mental formations, and body, with consciousness being separate. So consciousness conditions materiality, mentality. Now, this one is kind of an interesting link because there is an understanding that um, these two are mutually conditioning each other. I talked about the chicken and the egg before. Um, these are mutually conditioning each other. In one sutta, the Buddha, the Buddha described that he saw that consciousness conditions mind and matter. And when he went back, he tried to go further back. He thought, well, what conditions that? Mind and matter conditions consciousness. And consciousness conditions mind and matter. It goes back and forth. So based on the state of our consciousness, for example, or if our consciousness is, is flavored by anger, then our body may respond. Our body may become tense. We tend to perceive things as unpleasant. We, we experience things as unpleasant. So at this point, we're back where we started. That we have a mind and a body, and because we have a mind and a body, there's contact, feeling, craving. And you can see how with a mind that is flavored already, with ignorance, with mental formations inclined to screen things, certain things out and certain things in, how this pattern of unfolding conditions will tend to lead us through this cycle over and over again. So it's a pretty potent cycle. It tends to reinforce itself. But it can be broken apart. It can be unraveled with mindfulness. So this chain describes conditions that, lead to, that support leading to suffering. If the conditions are changed, we can change the course of our minds. And the main way to change the conditions is through mindfulness, understanding, and wisdom. Attention to understanding any of these 12 links will support its unraveling. So this is good news. Anywhere you are in your experience, wherever you wake up, whatever moment of experience you are waking up into, if you're, if you're connecting to it, in that moment with mindfulness and non-judgmental awareness, you're working to unravel this chain. You're working to understand the craving, if that's what you've woken up into, or perhaps the feeling of an identification, a strong sense of identity around a beingness of something. You wake up there, you bring the mindfulness there, it begins to unravel this chain. And there are some particularly weak links to this chain that the Buddha highlighted. I've already mentioned one of them, but I'll come back to it. 
two main weak links. The link between suffering and ignorance and the link between feeling and craving. So as I mentioned before, that we come to spirit, many of us come to spiritual practice through meeting suffering. And the, the Buddha said that suffering leads to bewilderment or to search. If that search is lucky enough to hear a liberative teaching, there is the possibility that instead of leading from suffering to ignorance, that suffering met with an understanding of there's a possibility of a a liberative path, that instead of leading to ignorance, suffering will lead to faith. There's a way out of this. That there's a teaching that proclaims a way to work with suffering, to become free of it. Then instead of leading to ignorance, suffering can lead to faith. And then there's another chain. It's called the transcendent dependent origination, the chain of transcendent dependent origination which takes us from faith to gladness, to rapture, to tranquility, happiness, concentration, knowledge and vision, disenchantment, dispassion, liberation. In, in the same kind of causal chain that this chain of suffering leads us step by step into suffering over and over again, This chain leads us step by step to freedom. The work at this link from suffering is to understand it, to bring mindfulness to it. The first noble truth says suffering should be understood. So we this is this has been a huge part of our practice here in these weeks and months. Understanding our suffering, not judging it but understanding how it comes to be in our present moment experience. You've all seen this. You've all seen, even in small ways, how understanding suffering leads to a release from that suffering. It may simply be a small movement of mindfulness that can hold suffering and not be reactive. And in that reactivity is a clue, is a hint of freedom. So the other link I'd like to mention is the link between feeling and craving. The Buddha emphasized this in many places in the suttas, that Paying attention to feeling is a very powerful practice. And part of the reason it's so powerful is because it's the link before which we leap into reactivity. Feeling leads to craving. But that link is relatively weak. Some of the links, contact leading to feeling, that's a strong link. I hear that it's possible to see between them. I don't think I've seen that. But I have clearly seen the, the feeling to craving link and seen that a modicum of mindfulness at feeling just short circuits that movement to craving entirely. When we can clearly recognize, oh, this is a pleasant experience, this is an unpleasant experience, the craving may be completely, it may be completely abandoned. It may not arise at all. So this is an extremely powerful practice.
there's a sutta that kind of addresses this. This isn't exactly another chain, but it is a list. I'll read this list. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. All things are rooted in desire. They come to actual existence through attention, originate from contact, and converge on feelings. So this part maps onto those first links of dependent origination in a rough way. I won't go through, I don't have time to go through how it maps on it, but basically you've got the, you know, the contact and the feeling is clear places where they link together. So things come into existence through, they're rooted in desire, come to actual existence through attention, originate from contact and converge on feelings. And then it goes in a different direction, kind of like the the link from suffering to faith goes in a different direction at that link in the chain. It says, the foremost of all things is concentration. All things are mastered by mindfulness. Their peak is wisdom, their essence, liberation. All things merge in the deathless and Nibbana is their culmination. So this isn't a a causal link causal list like dependent origination. But it does point to the kind of link at feeling being mastered by mindfulness and concentration. The moment to moment mindfulness of the flow of our experience, the concentration that results from that. All things are, the foremost of all things is concentration. All things are mastered by mindfulness. Their peak is wisdom, their essence, liberation. So clearly seeing and knowing our experience moment to moment, wherever we are in that chain, is the path towards the dismantling of that chain. The other thing I like about the sutta is that it refers to all things. All things have liberation as their essence. All things merge in the deathless. All things culminate in Nibbana with mindfulness and concentration. This is all things he's talking about. The touch of a doorknob the state of anger, all things culminate in liberation if we attend to them with concentration and mindfulness and wisdom. It does not matter what we bring our attention to. It doesn't matter where in that chain of suffering we've woken up. It does not matter. Mindfulness and concentration combined with the wisdom, a little bit of understanding of how this process works can lead us out of this chain of suffering to the end of suffering. Let's continue sitting quietly for a moment. All things are rooted in desire. They come to actual existence through attention, originate from contact, and converge on feelings. The foremost of all things is concentration. All things are mastered by mindfulness. Their peak is wisdom, their essence, liberation. All things merge in the deathless, and Nibbana is their culmination.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.